This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio. one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. At Lowe's, we're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch, now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture. And when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space. Just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in-store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii. All right, it's film study time once again. We're going to take a look at the defense because we've got some real football to talk about now as we look back at the week one performance against the Dolphins down in Miami. Ken McCusick, how you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? I'm doing great. I mean, it's I'm still in Florida. Weather's still in the 90s. Uh, I'm jealous of everyone back in Baltimore and those fall temperatures, but things are all good down here. Yeah, I want to ask you if you'd recover from the hurricane. I know you're back in, in the Jacksonville area again now. Uh, yeah, I had no issues with the hurricane. So we can feel for everyone in the Bahamas and send everything that way. In my area, I just got a little vacation out of it. All right, very good. Glad to hear it. All right, so we're joined uh, this week, like always, we've got a special guest, and we've got a fun one today. We've got Gordon McGinnis, who is the senior analyst over at PFF. How's it going, hey, Gordon? Hey, guys, how's it going? Thanks for having me on. Great to have you, Gordon. Kind of this opening day week, I always look at it, and, and there's a lot on the line for me personally, because I'll watch this game more than I do any game the whole year, just because the very first game of the year, and it's my team, of course, I want to watch them all week, and this is the only recent information i have so it's kind of like an all-in hand of poker for me particularly with them playing at miami being a big favorite you know they certainly expect to win the season takes a completely different turn if they would lose had lost a game like this for any reason and great to have them get out of there and obviously a big win is is all the more fun but uh but anyway, a loss would have been really rough. And I'm sure, Gordon, do you do you have a particular NFL team you root for? I know being an analyst for PFF, there's probably some impartiality. But who do you like? Yeah, I mean, I I kind of grew up a Ravens fan from when 
I think I started watching football when I was like 14. Um, I got into it that way. Uh, so I, I was a Ravens fan first. And then, I, I mean, I would still say that, you know, I still root for them to win. Um, I, I don't grade a lot of the NFL games themselves these days. I do more of the kind of stuff after that. So I don't need to worry too much about um, having to be impartial when it comes to grading because it's already been done uh, before I get my hands on it. So, yeah, it's fun. All right. All right, very good. And let's talk a minute about, for just a minute about the origin of PFF, and and it's a company that started. I don't I don't want the year wrong, but two thousand six, two thousand seven, basically out in the in the UK with Neil Hornsby. Yeah, it was around about then. I remember. So I actually started off right at the very start, just helping out a little bit. Um, but then I just I didn't have time through through work. So Neil Neil started the company. Um, I, if I can get this right, I think. The general premise was he was a huge fan of Dr. Z, who was at Sports Illustrated, I think. Um, and he had, he loved how in-depth he would go with some of the stuff he would do. Um, so one day he was just thinking, you know, what would happen if you went through every single snap and you had this full package? So rather than being told during a broadcast that the right guard from this team was really good and you just having to take that at face value, what if you went through and did every single snap? So um, it started out as a hobby for him. Uh, and then an NFL team wanting to get involved and uh, take our stuff on board. Um, it then just kind of snowballed slowly at first um, and then a little bit quicker. We've now got uh, all 32 teams in the NFL and upwards of 60 teams in college now um, who subscribe to the data. Uh, and obviously Chris Collinsworth got involved a couple of years ago. Um, so a large part of the company are now based out in Cincinnati. So, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a pretty big operation now. <laughs> yeah, very exciting. I mean, I knew Neil from very early on. We used to talk on the phone with some regularity. And and at, at, there was a, a time when we would be talking about the results of a particular game and, you know, from different broadcast angles or the fact that I was at the game, maybe asking for a little help. Uh, early on, I had I had the fun of correcting Sam Monson's score sheets for On the Ravens. <laughs> they, they would send me those and we would do that. So, but Sam is really kicking it now in terms of his, his uh, career. Let's, let's move on a little bit. We'll talk about the Ravens a, a little bit like this. And I, I guess one of the first questions I have for an analyst who watches the, you know, the entire NFL is what can the Ravens take from this game? Um, you know, we can talk offensively briefly, but that's really handle another show, but you know, mostly defensively uh, what are we able to project from this win? You know, I think, the big thing that you want to take out of it is, you know, one, save for one, they didn't have too many injuries coming out of the game. Um, two, they looked really good defensively. They looked really good on offense. Um, they did exactly what you would expect a team who are hopefully going to be a playoff contender should do in that environment. The Dolphins, I, I mean, they're they're going to be terrible this year. If they don't win a single game, I don't think anyone would be too shocked. But and at the same time, you know, to go in, only give up 10 points, score 59, you know, that that's exactly what you would want to do as a team in the Ravens position. You don't want to go into that game early in the season, slip up, have a little rust. Um, and they just they, they got the job done and did it in a pretty emphatic way. Yeah, I, I uh, very happy. I think there's some things they can take and there's other things I'm encouraging people not to get too high on at this point. <laughs> Very, very happy about the play of Humphrey and Thomas. Humphrey had one misplay, as I saw Thomas completely dominated the middle of that field. Uh, I thought the, the domination of Pierce and Williams was a big thing. We're going to talk about that a little later in terms of how they really took over that the line. And 
the Ravens really gave an advantage to the Dolphins by only dressing four defensive linemen for the game. And it, that's a big risk in the Miami Heat. And it, to, to compound it, only four outside linebackers. But they got by that, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that later as well. To me, the biggest thing coming out of this game, though, is a much reduced concern about the outside linebacker position in general and who they have filling that. You got good play out of all four of them. Now, it's two tackles that are absolutely awful. But you got good play, good consistent pressure out of Williams, out of Judon, out of Bowser, and out of McPhee, who would line up both inside and outside. Yeah, I mean, I think you could say that um, Williams and Bowser probably had one of, if not their best games as pros yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we we had Humphrey down for, uh, sorry, we had Williams down for um, five total pressures in the game. Um, Bowser, I thought, did a pretty solid job as well. So. Coming into the season, you know, the fact that they lost Suggs and, you know, obviously he's on downside of his career now, but was still a pretty powerful presence for them to have there. So it was always going to be a little bit of a concern having lost him, having lost to Darius Smith. Um, but the combination of Williams and um, Bowser stepping up yesterday, I think Judon's going to be the, the primary um, sack guy this year anyway, especially mm-hmm. as he heads towards free agency. Um, and then obviously McPhee, they didn't play him inside as much as I thought they would yesterday. Um, I kind of expected them to keep him light on the edge and then get him a few more obvious passing snaps inside. But yeah, I think they've got they've got some versatility there that should um, should be pretty good for them going forward. Yeah, uh, I'm excited about that. I have McPhee for 13 snaps. who are an exact match on Williams' pressures at five. Yeah. Uh, 13 snaps on the inside for McPhee. Yeah, I think I think he had some. Um, did he have some standing up inside as well? Possibly. Yeah, I think that might be more it was. I may have just been looking at the um, defensive line. All right, all right. So uh, lots to like in those terms. Uh, you know, the, the thing you mentioned about Suggs being lost, but the big thing that, that I was concerned about was that Suggs as a run defender was going to be lost. And one of the things I love about a lot of the things about PFF that I love, but one of the things I really love is it brings run defense for defensive ends and, and edge players into vogue, into part of the discussion. And Suggs, I think, would be a first ballot Hall of Famer anyway. But, you know, because he's played a large part of his career is overlapped with when PFF has been known. Um, his value as a run defender is really well known because he really is just about the best of his era at that position. Yeah. So anyway. Yeah, no, I think I think the the way he was able to set the edge, um, I, I think he was a better run defender than he was as a pass rusher. I don't yes, know what, I agree. What you're, yeah, um, he just had that ability to set the edge and really um, kind of shut a lot of things down. So yeah, that was definitely a concern coming into the season. Yeah. Anyway, 1.4 snaps per game they lost in those two players, and I'm looking at the other. Three, or you want to call it four, players that have to replace the snaps. They, the Ravens played 2.31 edge snaps. Oh, well, edge snaps is wrong. Outside linebacker snaps per game using using the players who have a primary designation as outside linebacker last year. If, if Judon plays 71% of the snaps, then they have to get 40% of the snaps from the other four players, and none of them have a pedigree for that. So it's a little scary because Williams and Bowser have never done it before, but they probably will this year. And it looks like from yesterday, I'm not concerned anymore. But, you know, Ferguson is a rookie and he was inactive for his first game. And then McPhee, if you think he's going to play 40% of the snaps at his age, I think it's an aggressive estimate. Yeah, I think that's fair. You, I mean, especially the injury concerns he's had throughout. Um, Tim Williams is a guy who I, I think we've talked about this before online. I was a huge fan of him coming out of Alabama, but even Alabama, he's a guy who played, 
you know, a couple hundred snaps every season. I think I think mm-hmm. his top season was three, four hundred snaps. You know, he's not a guy who has ever consistently been on the field for a significant amount of time. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, if he plays, what did he play yesterday? Kind of in the twenties, snap wise. Um, uh, you project that over the course of a season, and he's probably going to be hitting the most snaps he's ever played in his career. Yeah, and I, I I do think he'll get there. Now remember the Raiders only had 47 defensive snaps, so I expect him to yeah, play more on this. So he had 26 by my count, and that excludes the penalty play. So I've always got, I'm yep. a couple snaps lower than everybody, but 26. No, no, is yeah, that's that's exactly. Well, yeah, I'm looking at our um, plays with penalties out as well, and we're at 26 as well. Okay, great. So anyway, the uh, uh, that's it. anyway very very positive on what happened at outside linebacker, and I remember you loving that loving Tim Williams for the number one pick coming out uh when it would guess it would have been 2016 right yeah was, no what could have been 2016? uh 2017 17 right third yeah and yeah i wanted i wanted either him or lawson from auburn um those both be good yeah so yeah okay well good Big good fun. call i'm glad the ravens got him cheaper than that too yeah it's, uh, definitely it's an economical pick all right, well, let's talk a little bit about, you know, this snap edge and the, the, the formula the Ravens have now generated to winning football games is extreme snap count advantage is just the way they do it. Um, since the Lamar era began, uh, their, their offensive snaps actually with Flacco and Lamar very close last year, right around 71, 72, I think it was per game for each quarterback. But when Lamar took over, they obviously were taking more time to have those snaps, and the defense was reducing its snap count from 64 with Flacco to 56.9, which is an ungodly low number for a defense. And uh, they have an absurd, had an absurd advantage, which they leveraged very effectively. A lot of teams, they wouldn't do that. They'd have the same starters on the field. But Martindale is really, a, among all the things he does well, and I like a lot, He's the best Ravens defense coordinator ever at managing snap count by player. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that's that. Yeah. I mean, that it's, uh, and I think it's not, I think people often look at snap counts, managing snap counts, particularly mm-hmm. with the defensive line with linebackers. Mm-hmm. But you saw even the last couple of years, he did it in the secondary as well. Humphrey, you know, came on as a rookie brought him along slowly and then you know he was able to play more um later on in the year and then even last year there's still rotation in there he knows how to keep players fresh so yeah i think that's something that i think it it, you know fared them really well last season as well yeah it it did and and it's so extraordinary humphrey was the team's defensive mvp and he played 64 to 68 percent of the snaps whether you include the playoffs or not yeah it's just i've never heard of that at cornerback is a rare position to have your mvp and then to have it be a guy who's not even a full-time player you know, is a uh, is extraordinary, but he had a great year, and he's uh, yeah. we we love him. Um, okay, well, let's move on here uh, with with some of the packages, and I wanted to highlight some things that happened in yesterday's game that we could talk about a little bit, maybe about what it might mean going forward. But they only used four of the personnel groupings in this game. The Ravens have more than that available to them, and more than they used in 2018. But they used their base package, the, the just a plain old vanilla base three four four for only six snaps. And they gave up a total of one defensive yard on on those <laughs> plays. So six plays for one yard and and three heavies in the game. And I, a lot of that was Williams and Pierce playing together. They actually played together a lot more yesterday than they ever had before. Certainly than, yep. they, than they did last year. They had 15 snaps together yesterday. And last year, do you have any number on this? I, I, I could manufacture it, but I didn't do it before the show in terms of how often they played together. 
Uh, I don't. I don't. I, I think I probably could find it. I would just have to dig through some stuff. Yeah. Okay. Same position here. So we'll we'll, yeah. we'll work on that. <laughs> um, then they moved to the. They brought on the nickel, and uh, in, in the nickel they had 13 snaps, I believe it was, in the plain vanilla nickel. And, and that was effective as well to get about 70 yards in that. Um, and then they had the big nickel, which they have is a formation they have not used very much, but they used it against the Dolphins, bringing in Chuck Clark uh, as a third safety in nickel formations to cover the to act as the slot corner. Kind of a reaction to the Tavon Young situation and him being hurt. Uh, I was thinking that Deshaun Elliott might be the guy who gets some playing time there. Yeah, and I think Elliot played pretty well in preseason and as a guy who's th- shown some some pretty decent coverage skills. So um, I was a little bit surprised to see him not play as much more than um, than what he did yesterday. All right, and uh, and then they played the dime as they always do. The dime was their primary package in this game: sixteen snaps, three point nine yards per play, and that included three sacks. You know, I'm not saying these these sample sizes are particularly large, but it's nice to see the Ravens dime player. Uh, players uh, both playing reasonably well. Both Trawick and Levine were okay in this game. And I, I thought Levine did some things in coverage. One thing in particular in coverage I like, but he also had a good game as a pass rusher with a with a pressure and another quarterback hit that was kind of a cleanup quarterback hit. But the, the other play I really liked was down the seam, him uh, running with Humphrey to really – cut off any ability to throw that receiver open. And I'm trying to get the exact uh, time reference here for you. Do you remember it? I remember seeing it, yeah. Couldn't, I couldn't tell you what time it is, but I remember watching okay. it. Okay, so we got Q3601. They're bracketing Grant down the middle of the field. Yep. So uh, one of those plays that it's great to see uh, overlapping circles that that cut down on the catch radius for the, the receivers, the way I yeah. think of it when I'm – I think he's that. quite a fun player as well, Levine. I think he's yeah. one of those kind of unheralded players. But when they get into that, I remember, um, I think it was the first game against Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh last year. They got mm-hmm. into, uh, they got in that dime package. Levine had the interception. And as you touched on there, they can do a couple of things with him as a pass rusher, as a blitzer. Mm-hmm. Um, and had a bit of success there yesterday. So, yeah, I think any time you can get um, players like him onto the field, even if it only winds up being for, you know, 15, 20 snaps a game, and you can do some things like that with them. Again, that that helps with keeping players fresh as well. I think the the ability to rotate package as well as players um, is something that Martindale does a really good job with. Yeah, you know that that was a, a we haven't had a chance to talk about this, Gordon. Although we talk about it occasionally on this show, the weak side linebacker platoon for the Ravens was extraordinary last year. I mean, it piled up like nine sacks and ten passes defensed, and you know a bunch of tackles and whatnot. I mean, it's really unknown. You know, you don't get a linebacker who can do all of those things, an inside linebacker, really ever. There weren't any in the NFL. Darius Leonard had a good year, but but uh, you know, it's it's extraordinary. But more than that, you can. It, it's a unicorn total performance. But if you actually had the unicorn in that position, whether it's C.J. Mosley or Luke Kuechly or you know somebody particularly good. You pay that guy a ton of money, A, yeah. and B, if he ever got hurt, you're completely screwed. But yeah, you, yeah, lose, yeah. you lose one of the other guys, and they're very replaceable. Yep. If Levine goes down, you get Clark. Funny story about Levine. He's He's been at camp this year, and the, they've developed a council at the Ravens camp. I don't know if you've, you've so heard I, about I, this. I saw a little bit of this online, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, Levine is 32 years old, and the other guys are all like 25, 26 years yeah, old. It's, yeah. it's just kind of funny the way they, they, they interact, but he is loving football life, and I think he'll <laughs> play as long as he can. Just a very fun player. Yeah. All right. 
Okay, well, uh, let's see. Let's talk about some maybe some individual players then uh, performances in this game. We had some interesting things we were looking forward to. Patrick Ricard uh, had a big preseason, and the Ravens surprisingly cut Willie Henry and went with only five defensive linemen, and that includes Ricard, who also plays fullback, of course. So we knew that he would get a bigger defensive role than he did last year. because last year he didn't play a lot of defensive snaps. Played mostly fullback. I don't. I don't know how many times he played on defense last year, but his last significant playing time was in the October game against the Bears two years ago when he had to play on an emergency basis. Played a bunch of snaps. So anyway, did you have expectations of this coming in? Coming in about Ricard, or maybe you know your review of him as a player in this game? But you know, I, I didn't even necessarily have expectations, but I just I love the fact that it's 2019 and we've got a player who's a a fullback on one side of the ball and a yeah. de- defensive interior lineman on the other. Because as everything else in football is going to the you know the extremes of the passing game, and then you've got a player who is an undersized defensive lineman, plays fullback, scores a touchdown in the game. Um, I think he had a hit as well in the game. Um, so it's fun to have a player who can make an impact on both sides of the ball. And you know he, he's if, if we're being realistic, he's probably not going to be a guy who is going to make a Pro Bowl as a defensive lineman. Right. But if you can get you know, 10 snaps a game out of, of him, not even necessarily every week. If you can get a little bit when you need to, he can make a couple of plays there. It, it just it adds value on the roster, I think. Yeah, it certainly it should add flexibility. And honestly, it's a, it's a very similar start to Kelly Gregg when I look at him. Yeah. I'm going to explain this in a second. So Kelly Gregg in 2001 came into this league as a situational pass rusher. A lot of people don't remember that, but, you know, he's a nose tackle and, and, you know, a guy you'd get off the field on third down for most of his career. But when he came into the league, the, the Ravens had Syracuse and Adams both on the team. And they were taking up those first down snaps mm-hmm. as the as the hole pluggers. So uh, it, it was Kelly Gregg's job to come out on third down and try and get off the quarterback, get after the quarterback, no matter how he could. And Patrick Ricard's situation is one where I thought maybe they'd use him in the base package to then spread some of Chris Wormley's snaps into pass rushing role where he could maybe provide more, or even Pierce maybe, who's, you know, can be disruptive in the middle pretty much under any circumstances. But they they made Patrick Ricard the situational pass rusher in this game, and he's playing mostly on third down here. In fact, 10 of his 11 snaps were in, in on passes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I just I love the the reference to Kelly Gregg there because he's a guy who I think probably in the early days of PFF was someone who we just you know, we obviously absolutely loved because of what he did against the run. But yeah, I think mm-hmm. I, it, it's definitely really interesting that they used him as almost their primary situational situational pass rusher yesterday. And it'll be it'll be interesting to see if that continues um, as the season wears on. Right. The Ravens, of course, at this offseason were in the sweepstakes to get McCoy. They yep. were in the sweepstakes, I think, to get Daniels when he was available. That was so brief. It really wasn't yep. a, a lottery or anything. Uh, lottery is the wrong word. A, 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 an auction. Um, <laughs> but, but they but they did uh, they did try to make, a, I think, a real effort to get McCoy. And, you know, Willie Henry was a guy. He was only on the field for 52 pass snaps last year, and 11 of those were sacks. So 21.2% sack rate, very high for a— uh, uh, inside player. And he got, some of that was the benefit of playing that Tennessee game when uh, when he was on the field. But I, I thought it was a little risky to let him go when they didn't really have a replacement. Yeah, and I think it, it's always, you know, they're not the not the deepest team there um, in general anyway. So, yeah, a guy who – and again, Willie Henry, you know, might not have been the best or most dominant player, but definitely filled the role for them. So, um 
I, I think I was a little bit surprised that they wound up keeping as much as they kept in the secondary and letting the guy like Willie Henry go. Right. Right. Well, they did. They really they really built a special teams roster yeah. to an extreme degree. And, I, I, you know, we've been a little bit of back and forth in particular with the with their activations for yesterday in terms of whether or not they overactivated people for special teams versus front seven. And with them winning the snap battle, 73, 47, the argument looks kind of silly on my part, but it was a big risk they took. Yeah, you know, they, they, to 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 do that anyway. I uh, they did get Trawick in the game. They used him. Bethel recovered a, a you know a fumble on the punt, so he was obviously important. I don't know how much you know about this, but the Ravens uh, recover a comp pick if they cut Bethel before week ten. Yeah. So it's likely to happen. Though so you're aware, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, it's such a weird thing that you know they can have him on the roster, but then if they cut him, then. They get and I think I'm right in saying they can cut them but bring them back like a couple of weeks later. And they no, still... I don't. I don't think they can. And I asked our, ah, okay. our salary cap guru. I thought the same thing, by the way. So yeah, you know, exactly. Uh, <laughs> There's uh, so oh, many weird really. things. <laughs> so many weird things with the salary cap when it comes to these comp picks. Yeah. All right. Uh, I, another guy I thought was kind of underrated coming into the season. Obviously had a big preseason. Chris Wormley. Uh, yesterday he was the most versatile of the Ravens guys in terms of what packages he played. And he played in the base package. He played a lot with either Pierce or Williams individually in, in two defensive line packages. And he also had a, a few snaps as the single DL as well. So in, in their uh, a dime package where they have three outside linebackers. So, I, I, you know, he's, he's done a lot this year. I liked him getting off for a quick quarterback hit in a game where there were a lot of cleanup quarterback hits. You know, they were all nice and hard. That, that that made me happy as a Ravens fan. <laughs> but they were but some of them were definitely cleanup jobs in terms of uh, of I think am I am I correct in saying that PFF probably grades a fast solo one on one win higher than they would a cleanup quarterback hit? Yeah. Yeah. So um, if you look at so in terms of how we grade the, the highest grade we'll give as a pass rusher would be for um a sack hit or hurry that comes really quickly with like, you know, beating a block to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas if it's a guy who, uh, if it's just a cleanup hurry um, or a cleanup hit, um, it's going to get a lower grade potentially as well. If there's not a hit involved, you're going to be talking about something that winds up getting a zero grade. So the guy gets the the guy gets the stat for um, the cleanup pressure um, but, you know, unless he's knocking them to the ground, he's probably not. So the ones the Ravens had yesterday, I think, probably did get did get grades because, as you said there, they were hitting them to ground with a little bit of force. Mm-hmm. Um, and any time you can do that, I think that's worth a little bit more. But you do see it a lot. I think a couple of years ago, I remember um, Vic Beasley at Atlanta had a ton of sacks. Really weirdly, not a whole lot of pressure outside that. And his grade was good, but just didn't really match the, the, the sack mm-hmm. total. Um, and when we looked at the grade, it was because I think some like half of his sacks came in a cleanup variety. And if you see a guy who consistently it's cleanup that his pressure comes from, there's not a lot of um, there's not a good chance of him repeating that. And you saw that in the following years um, with Beasley that you couldn't really do it. So, yeah, I think that's that's where I'd, I, I love the fact that we can kind of differentiate between a guy who will dominate a block and get there and a guy who. Um, will get there through a cleanup, even though both have you know degrees of value. Right. There, there was an excellent article on offensive line blocking that I think Sam Palazzo put together. I might have the name slightly wrong, but he, uh, Steve, I think. Yeah, Steve. Steve okay, sorry. Yeah. Uh, he he put together the article that explained how the offensive line scoring was done in terms of 
anytime you get beat by the opposing player, there was a similar score regardless of what the outcome was. But in terms of a, a, like a pressures allowed or a pass yeah. rush productivity, there'd be a difference. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's like in the pass rushing productivity formula, um, sacks are definitely weighed heavier. I think hits are weighed a little bit heavier as well, um, just to give a little bit more value there. But yeah, when it comes to the grades, um, regardless, with, with it's more to do with how quickly the block's beaten that the grade's going to come from rather than it led to this. Because you can see a guy who will beat the right tackle really quickly um, and is going to be in position for the sack, but as someone else has got there quicker so um and we found that if you grade along that way it's got more chance of being predictive yes. um, with stuff in the future so exactly what i was thinking <laughs> yes it's got it's that's got to be true outstanding that's a that's a good little look into it maybe we'll talk about some other piece of grading as we move along here let's let's talk uh let's let's move to another player here from the ravens though uh tyus bowser and I thought one of the interesting things we saw was the Ravens deploying this two Sam linebacker package a fair amount. So they're willing to, to use uh, Bowser on the covered or uncovered side. And same thing with Judon. Uh, it certainly gives them the potential for some coverage flexibility to do that. So if they want to rotate their coverage, uh, you know, bring an extra free runner, which to my money on, on the NFL right now on third and medium, it's it's difficult to generate fast pressures by having to beat a block. You really have an easier time beating it, creating a fast pressure with a free runner. And so if you can get one from linebacker by stunt off the slot, maybe even from safety, uh, you, you have other options to get there. But to do so, you have to trust your your edge players and you have to trust your your safeties to be able to p- pick up those other coverage responsibilities uh, that exist. Yeah, what's quite interesting with Bowser actually is. Um, I don't have it in front of me, but anecdotally, I can remember, I think when, because he came out in the same draft as Tim Williams, didn't he? Mm -hmm. Um, And we didn't love him as a pass rusher coming out of college, but he did grade pretty well for us in coverage. I think he actually dropped into coverage a fair amount um, at Houston um, in his final season there, um, or enough that that the grade was um, solid enough. So uh, it's interesting that if he winds up being a guy who potentially drops back getting the coverage a little bit more for the Ravens in certain situations. He has at least shown in college that it's something that um, he can do to a fairly solid level. Right. In, in his very first season, I think it might have been second or third week of the year, he had an interception against Cleveland in a big game. Yeah. And we thought he'd break out and, and you know be a much more important piece of the puzzle, but he really did not yeah. <laughs> in terms of that. And, and his, his snaps have stayed under 200 in his first couple of years. And, uh, you know, this is the year I'm sure I'm sure he's going to jump far forward in terms of snaps. But th- there's there's a key element here is that Martindale's got to value that flexibility in order to maximize his snaps, because if he doesn't, if if he says, well, I've only really got one room for one Sam on the field, then you've got Judon at 71 percent of the snaps and Bowser is only has that 29 percent of the snaps yeah. to play with. So they've got to find value in that two Sam package and seeing them play it a few times yesterday, I think it might have been. Uh, 10. I have it in the article anyway. They, they, it's it's a exciting step towards them just using that. And if they do that, they have much more flexibility with their, their outside linebacker group as a whole. And we may even see the race car later this year with four outside linebackers on the field and McPhee and Ferguson on the inside. I could, I could certainly see. Yeah. Yeah. That would make a lot of sense to try that. And I think it's, it's important for Bowser that 
he can be versatile enough and the Ravens are versatile enough that um, they can use him in those situations. But it's important for the Ravens as well because, as you said there, they need to get as much flexibility out of these linebackers mm-hmm. to maximize the snaps for them to be able to do what they want to do. So, yeah, if they can get and, – and I think Bowser is the guy who makes the most sense um, in that in that role with Judon. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if that continues going forward. Right. All right. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Kenny Young because, obviously, uh, you know, an up-and-down game for him. And he, this is a mirror of the preseason, some great unblocked quarterback hits that really just level him because his, his destruction of Gardner Minshew on the preseason in the preseason was <laughs> yeah. certainly something that, uh, that got a lot of play and he had two big quarterback hits yesterday, but I'm still seeing a lot of the coverage troubles that we have seen from his rookie year. Yeah. And that, this is something I remember hearing a lot. It's something that, and I think when people watch football, if you're watching it fairly casually, you remember the big plays, you remember the hit on Minshew, you remember, um, you know, big hits and coverage that happen or big hits against the run and all the little breakdowns that either don't lead to big play, but very easily could have, or lead to big play, but it's a linebacker. So, you know, you're not really paying attention to him in coverage. Everyone kind of forgets. And I remember last year, a load of people online were, you know, getting really excited about Kenny Young and why is he not grading particularly well why is this and this and this and when you dig into his grade it's pretty much exactly as you said there there's just not the down-to-down consistency especially in coverage and that's something that in terms of how he's going to grade overall for us is always going to knock him down a little bit because if he has a couple of those coverage breakdowns a game for a guy who you know plays 20 or so snaps in a game it's really hard to get that grade back up mm-hmm. with a couple of unblocked quarterback hits so he's a player who i think if he could develop a little bit more consistency he could really develop into a pretty good player um but fills a role regardless for the ravens it's just something that if they're going to use him on the field and he doesn't improve and doesn't improve his consistency you probably just have to try and live with that and understand that you know you might need to take some risks there and you know it might bite you now and again right you you, you cover for him but yeah you know, we've we've said in his rookie year he's definitely a downhill player i thought he, you know obviously being fast to the football is what his game is being you know being a guy who can exploit potentially openings uh, that happen along the line to for a delayed blitz you know to to shoot a gap fearlessly and hope it works out you know take that risk i think yeah. those are all good things but but he, he really never has gotten the play behind him and so anything's happening. I'm still remembering a, a, a completion in the Carolina game last year for about 18 yards that, that kind of stuck in my craw for a while. This one to Giusecki over the middle on the crossing route didn't look good. Um, you know, it's, it, it's just, it's, you know, too often that happens. And unfortunately, the Ravens have, because they have such a good umbrella set of defenders in terms of the, the pass, even with Jimmy Smith out, I think that's still going to be okay. Their weakness is now at slot corner. We don't, where we don't really know what they have, and at both inside linebacker spots in terms of coverage. And that's a lot of contiguous area to have a problem with. So while I love the Ravens secondary, I'm very concerned about that. Yeah, I think there definitely is potential, especially if they pick up another couple of injuries, that all of a sudden you get very light and uh, things can get a little bit hairy. And I think, you know, a game yesterday against Miami who were never likely to be a threat, it's not really going to be a huge concern later on in the year when you want to try and play New England or you're going to have to go in the playoffs and play New England, play in Kansas City in a couple of weeks, things like that. 
teams that are going to be able to exploit the middle of the field a little bit more, that's when those things are going to get stress tested just a little bit more. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, I, we didn't quite get to Anthony Averett yet. And obviously he plays a huge role. And, and I think we've probably got some questions coming up about Jimmy Smith uh, later on. But uh, Anthony Averett uh, came in after what Jimmy Smith played about six plays in this one, played the rest of the snaps in the game. I would have to say it's a pretty uneven performance. I'll, there were definitely flashes of some positive things and also some things that didn't work out, including a very bad stretch of plays at the end of the half. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's it's probably something that was true of um, Averett in the little bit we saw of him last year. Um, he had some nice plays. Same in preseason. There was, I know there was one game in particular in preseason where people on Twitter were all over him for playing poorly. But um, I remember even back at Alabama, he he was the the least consistent of the guys they have there. I remember um, I much preferred the the guy who was a walk on there, uh, Levi Wallace, who wound up being undrafted and going to the Bills. Um, I don't think he played particularly well for Buffalo yesterday either, though. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try and chalk that up as a win for me just yet. Um, but he's a guy who you know has some decent speed, um, has the ability to make some plays in coverage. Uh, I think he had a pass breakup yesterday, mm-hmm. um, but but the Dolphins picked on him. I think we had them we have them with uh, I think ten or eleven targets yesterday in coverage. Um, I think he was giving up something like fifteen, sixteen yards a catch. So again, that's something where better teams are going to be able to capitalize on that a little bit more probably. So there's a little bit more concern there. Okay, let's say the 15, 16 yards of catch probably comes from him being charged big one. with a long one for 49. Yeah. And I, I thought Humphrey, honestly, really uh, blew it on that play. He didn't he didn't high point the ball, but he's coming in from the other angle and has the yeah. much better shot to intercept that football. And he actually ended up going behind the receiver instead of high, trying to high point was that, the Was this the one, is that the one that, was it Devontae Parker? Devontae Parker, yeah. down the seam, 46 plus 3 yak. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'd need to go back and look at it again. But yeah, I remember Humphrey being in there. Um, I remember at the time thinking he probably should have picked it off. So yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was certainly a bad play. But then Avert didn't doesn't have an excuse for the plays at the end of the half happening. He allowed the toe tap in front of him by Williams. Then yep. Williams got another one for 11, and then he slipped on the TD throw for for the six yards. So he gave up the touchdown there too. And uh, it, to me, it was a it was a really bad run of plays at the end of the half that that kind of doomed his game from that perspective. That said, Anthony Averett is the right cornerback on this team, and he's going to be there for a number of weeks and, and apparently playing full time. Uh, oh, I guess maybe we should talk about that. What what do the Ravens do in a post Jimmy Smith era? Yeah, and I, mean, I think the the difficult thing here is the Tavon Young injury looms large here as well because if Tavon Young was healthy, the Jimmy Smith injury really wouldn't be that big a concern because the Ravens coming into the season had three outside cornerbacks that would start on most teams in the NFL mm-hmm. with Smith, with Humphrey, and Brandon Carr. Um, I think. It made sense to put Carr into the slot, so you had those top three cornerbacks on the field. I think me personally, I would probably kick Carr back outside um, and then see what you have inside. Um, the obvious concern inside is that without Tavon Young, it then goes to a guy who like Cyrus Jones, who we saw have one really good game in the preseason and one really bad game, so there's probably going to be a lot of inconsistency there. Avera, I don't think has the I don't think this is his style of play suits to playing in the slot at all. Mm-hmm. Um 
so yeah it makes things a little bit trickier there um and i think just the the kind of compounding of injuries but with smith and Tavon young um is something that puts a bit more pressure on it okay the ravens have a significant amount of draft capital uh available to them and it would there are trades being made in the nfl right now and including a slot corner available on some team might be there now and won't be there potentially in several weeks as cornerbacks are one of the positions that thins very quickly with injuries in the NFL. The other player the Ravens have sitting on the practice squad is Maurice Kennedy, who could be called up now, but they have to find the place for him. They have to cut somebody yeah. else to do it. So, you know, they, they have a few options. Kennedy played eight weeks in the slot, and I thought played pretty well there down the stretch in 2017. So maybe he'd be the guy you move back in there. They have shown no proclivity to do that, no desire to move him back into the slot. Uh, Averett was a guy that that uh, I certainly wondered if he would end up in the slot. And, and he played there on an emergency basis versus Kansas City last year. Wasn't many. Handful of snaps towards the end of the game. Yeah. But but I thought he might have been a guy that they would try there, too. I, I didn't assume that it would have to be Carr. Yeah, I think I, I think for me it was just the fact that when you look at their, you know, they, they were not necessarily struggling because I think they were happy to rotate, but it was difficult for them to have all three of Humphrey, Smith and, and Carr on the on the field at the same time. So um, I, I think that was probably a large part of the decision was just making sure they were all on the field. Um, but yeah, for me, for me, if Smith's going to miss even a couple of weeks, I, I think you want to be strong on the outside, um, and I would have Carr back playing on the outside there. Okay. All right. Um, I'm, I'm, I guess if I'm going to differ here, I'm going to say I'm, I'm not as down on Averitt yet. I think that I'm not going to take this game as the game that, that uh, defines him. And he's, he had 65 snaps last year, looked pretty good in those on the outside. And I'd like to see him hang tough and, uh, and uh, play a little bit more on the outside, at least in this Week 2 game against Arizona, and we'll see what happens from there. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. Okay, so let's move on here. Uh, did want to talk about Earl Thomas. I don't think Baltimore fans would be very happy if we didn't <laughs> in, in terms of this game. Uh, interception on his fourth snap with the team. You know, it certainly had a big impact on the game as I watched it in terms of where the ball was not thrown after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think the other, as well as the interception, I think I remember him having a play as well where um, he showed his range pretty good to get all the way to the sideline and force. Yeah, he either forced the yes. guy out or forced him out for a tackle for short, but I think he was forced out to, to prevent the completion. I think as well, one of the things I was most excited about when they when they signed Daryl Thomas is when uh, Marlon Humphrey was coming out of Alabama, He he seemed to really love being in trail technique at cornerback. And I think if you can have him trailing behind a receiver, knowing that he is the support of a guy like Errol Thomas over the top, I think that's something that will allow Humphrey to, to try and make some more plays underneath. Um, but yeah, the I mean, what we saw from Errol Thomas yesterday with that interception, um, with all due respect to um, Eric Weddle, it's the type of safety play that Baltimore hasn't seen since the end of the Ed Reed era. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just that ability to go and take away half the field and, you know, the fact that he can, the range he shows and how smart he is at knowing where the ball is going to be um, is up there with the best guys to ever play the game. So, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty impressive to watch. 
Yeah, he's he's a good gambler, and that in the end, all safeties, all free safeties who want to really play center field, they have to gamble and decide yep. on one. It's almost like being a soccer goalie on penalty kicks. You just have to you have to gamble, go to one side, and hope you're right sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because the the ball is probably not coming right up the middle. Uh, but anyway, the the uh, the thing I loved about Earl in this game is that you could see how. No one was testing that middle of the field. And I, I remember heat maps from the end of last year showing very clearly that other teams did not want to throw there when he was single high, as opposed to heat maps uh, when he had missed games in the last 12 games of last year. I think the last 12 weeks he was out, last 12 games, and totally different heat map of where the ball was thrown against Seattle. Yeah. And then I don't love passer rating as a. As a raw stat, I think when you get to add it into some things like defensive backs and stuff, it has a little bit more value. Um, I can't remember the exact stat, but we had something similar that was teams throwing the ball deep against Seattle with Earl Thomas on the field and without Earl Thomas on the field. There was a huge drop in passer rating. There was a huge drop in yards, huge drop in completion percentage, um, huge drop in targets when Thomas was on the field. So um, I think he's just the type of player that, commands the attention of a quarterback every time they drop back to pass they want to know where he is so i think that's a it's a huge impact there right if it's a, a particular veteran like fitzpatrick you know that's going through his head because yeah. he's he's already scrambling for his life and doing a very effective job frankly fitzpatrick without him playing yesterday i mean this would have been an even more i don't know but a lot more lopsided game because they might have cut off the scoring earlier but it, it would have been a more ugly game, certainly. And, and yeah. Miami could easily, with a bad quarterback, have had 75 yards in this game. Uh, but anyway, uh, he he's the, definitely the kind of quarterback I would think of might wear the, you know, find 29 on every play on his armband, the way we remember <laughs> with Ed Reed. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, this is a point in the show where we normally go through the defensive MVPs for this game. I'm going to go three to one, and, and I, I'll just uh, call out mine. You already vindicated your... Desire not to play, but you can. You can still change your mind. <laughs> That's right. fine. I'll let you go ahead. All right, let's go. My number three guy, Earl Thomas, uh, a terrific, uh, uh, not involved in a lot of plays after the interception, but uh, but certainly took over the middle of that field. If you want to say anything about these guys, we just talked about them. So. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, he he would be on my list of three definitely. All right. My number two guy, uh, Patrick Owasu. Now he had some difficulties. It wasn't perfect, and and he definitely was not a guy who is giving me a lot of confidence in terms of his ability to cover. Uh, he didn't have a great game in terms of tackling yesterday, but the Ravens, honestly, against this Miami team, there was a lot of going for the football, but there was also just a lot of getting there quickly to, st- to stop the guy in his tracks so that the second guy can make the hit. And the worst missed tackle for Owasu, of course, was rolling up on Jimmy Smith's leg early on in the game, but he was very fast to the football, and, and he's going to give the Ravens some of what they've lost from C.J. Mosley, at least as a downhill player. Yeah, yeah, I think that that sums up um, him as a player pretty well. Um, yeah, the, the missed tackles are something that might hurt you more against other teams, but I think, as you said there, there was definitely a lot, especially when the score started to get up a little bit, there was definitely a lot of players trying to make plays in the ball and trying to make some things happen. So um, I think that probably, well, it doesn't excuse them, it adds a little bit of context to them. All right. Matthew Judon, my number one. Uh, a variety of grown man plays in this. I've got him for one. Let me make sure I've got this right from my chart here. One sack, one quarterback hit, one pressure, 
And he also had another quarterback hit that got washed out by penalty. I don't know if you guys have it that way. Do you have him for two quarterback hits or just one? Uh, we've got one, 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 but I'm looking at um, without penalties as well. So that's okay. probably. So the, an illegal formation penalty wiped it out. But I guarantee you, that's that's part of why Fitzpatrick's not feeling so well today <laughs> yeah. is that second, second hit because <laughs> it was a hard one. Uh, Judon on the one run play going into that backfield, taking him down for the eight yard. I don't know what you call it, a lateral, I suppose, overhand yeah. lateral. Uh, to take him down for eight yards was fantastic recognition, and he's well on his way to earning a big contract, probably somewhere else, unfortunately, uh, for next year. Yeah, yeah, that that play is definitely the one that stood out. Um, big hit as well as recognizing. I think though, I, I don't know if he's necessarily going to be away somewhere else because I think the the advantage for Baltimore next year is the fact that they no longer have a big quarterback contract on the mm-hmm. on on the cap. So hopefully, if players like Judon play really well this year hopefully they're going to be able to start getting into extending those guys a little bit more we talk about this a little bit in terms of philosophically it's a good thing to have to make hard choices between franchise cornerstone players it means you're drafting well yeah you're moving along you're coming to these points and you're saying crap we got three more guys we're going to lose <laughs> next year well good <laughs> yeah. you know pick the one that really fits your scheme best Sign, make sure you sign him. And, and, you know, maybe the next guy they sign is Ronnie Stanley. Maybe the next guy after that is Marlon Humphrey. But they're going to they're going to hopefully be able to have their choice of cornerstone players. Um, and, and, you know, Michael Pierce, maybe he's the guy. Maybe they give get a Wasso back at some reasonable salary. Maybe Judon is the guy. Maybe they get two of them if they're really lucky. But the, but I want them still to be careful fiscally about how they're spending their money. Yeah. And I think the other thing, as we saw, as we saw this year, you know, as much as losing C.J. Mosley, as much as losing to Darius Smith might not have been ideal for what they were looking for, the, the salaries they went for, it's better for Baltimore to get the compensatory draft pick that they get. Or, you know, it was it was able to offset the comp pick when it comes to Earl Thomas and stuff like that. So if Judon has a big year and, you know, he's going to get $18 million a year in the open market and Baltimore's no way willing to pay that, get your third round draft pick as, as compensation. And that's fine. I think, you know, mm-hmm. those are the difficult decisions and it's the decisions that smart teams in the NFL these days. I think you saw new England do it this year, new England, a team who are built back to front defensively happy to let Trey flowers go because they just weren't willing to spend that much money on a, on a defensive end. Um, and they'll just take that third round pick uh, next year. There you go. So uh, Josh, how about, what do we have in the mailbag this week? Yeah, let's get a little bit to the mailbag. we got a few questions. Uh, a lot of questions about Jimmy Smith and what the Ravens do now. I mean, Edgar Lee, Rich, Daniel, and some others all got in the same question about Jimmy Smith. And you guys have gotten to Jimmy Smith and kind of what the Ravens can do now. But what you haven't talked about yet, maybe a different angle, is how does like the injured reserve list and like designated to return fall into this? Is that something that the Ravens can take advantage of in order to make room for Kennedy or someone else? Jimmy Smith can be put on injured reserve and he can then still return later in the year. And I think it's eight weeks. He needs to, needs to wait. I, I, I hate to say, I don't know exactly if it's eight or seven or six or what it is. Do you happen to know Gordon? No, I don't know. But it's, it's around about like, I think, I think if he was to go on injured reserve now, I think he can come back around about like week 10, something like that. Sounds right. Yeah. So he has to miss two through nine. So if if uh, you know if that were to occur, there's two there's two problems with it. Problem number one is he better be out the whole time, or you really are going to be sorry you 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 left him out. 
The second is it uses one of your two de designated to returns to bring it back. So you only have two of those. I think they're planning to use one already on a Mon Marshall. So if they got somebody else hurt, it would it would really leave them shorthanded. And I, I like the fact that the Ravens roster, and I like it more and more, obviously, with the Smith injury, that the Ravens roster was constructed to have a midseason cornerback reinforcement. In fact, if there was a way to do that every year, I'd, I'd probably want to do it. <laughs> but uh, but this it was a good one for this year. I think as well the the reports on Smith so far I I don't think are too bad like I don't think it's looking like a half season injury I think it's one of those ones that you know potentially in a couple of weeks time you might they might be able to start talking about getting him back on the field so provided it is something short term then I think it doesn't make sense to look at the the end reserve list um and you know because it takes up a space on that and it limits you from doing other things um but yeah I think the the key is going to be how long they think he's going to be out for um and if it just winds up being a short-term thing then it's just something they're just going to have to try and deal with for a couple of weeks all right uh what's a better storyline coming out of this game how the ravens defense played or how bad the miami dolphins are is can you look at one without the other uh, I'm going to go ahead and say if it was if you were asking about the offense, I'd probably have a different answer because I think Lamar Jackson was the story of this game and the story of the whole week in the NFL. But if you if you want to talk about uh, you know the the, the I'm, I'm torn as far as whether the defense really had a fantastic game or it was more a case of the Dolphins are just unbelievably bad, particularly on that offensive line. Yeah, I, I was talking to someone about this at work earlier today, and when the Browns did the tank it didn't feel as obvious as this. And I think that's partly perception because Cleveland were so bad for so long. They didn't have a quarterback anyway. You know, no one thought Hugh Jackson was a particularly good head coach. So it didn't feel like a huge amount of tanking. It just felt a lot like the Browns are still bad. Miami have very much committed to a, a tank that for a team who weren't particularly good anyway, but they were they were solid enough. You know, we saw them beat New England on that freak play at the end last year. Um, they're all they they were a team who were floating around um, as a kind of middle of the pack team who were never really threatening as a playoff team. So I think it makes complete sense for them to do what they're doing um, because I think worst case scenario you reset and if it doesn't work you can just start again and you know it, it's fine, but it's an extreme tank and it is just, you know, it's an extreme roster um, dismantling. Uh, and obviously there's been reports today that there's players who want traded right. out of there and things like that. I mean, I think this is a team who lost 59-10 and I don't think anyone would be surprised if they have similar lopsided losses. I mean, they play New England. I think I saw the line for the New England game this week, something like 23 points. Wow. Um, <laughs> that's that's the highest I've ever seen. I've never seen above I, 21 in NFL. And, and you know, I, if I was to bet that today, I think I'd probably bet the Patriots to win by 23 <laughs> or more, just based on what we saw yesterday. So I think, I, I think it's probably, you, you, you can probably talk about both. I think I, I, I was tweeting a little bit about this earlier after week one, everyone wants to either go down the route of it doesn't matter because Miami are so bad. Um, particularly with the offensive side of the ball, or, you know, it doesn't matter that Miami are bad, it was still really good. And I think you can probably kind of, especially early on in the season, you kind of put those things together and, it, yes, Miami were bad, but you can also look at the Baltimore Ravens um, defense and how they performed, and, you know, they did exactly what they were supposed to do. So I think you can probably look at both things, and, and it's one of those things that both things are true.
Okay. All right. Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. Did you, did you have more to add? No, I'm good. All right. All right. Uh, well, let's look a little bit ahead because you're right. The lines after week one are outrageous. The Ravens are 13 and a half favorites going into week two. Uh, and we got a couple questions looking ahead. One is first one is from Michael, who is wondering what went wrong with the defense this week that they need to fix that better teams will take advantage of. Oh, uh, I, I, I think the biggest problem for me, the biggest risk for me isn't the pass rush anymore. It's it's what the coverage is going to be like in the middle of the field between slot corner and both linebackers when they have two pure inside linebackers on the field and not Levine. It's just a, a very weak uh, set of past defenders there that I'd be I'm, I'm extremely concerned about. How about you, Gordon? Yeah, I think I think the middle of the field when you go up against guys like Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady, people like that becomes a lot more of a concern than um, it is against Ryan Fitzpatrick and the Miami Dolphins. Um, Kyler Murray this week is going to be interesting because I think it depends which version of Murray you get. Um, he wasn't good for three quarters yesterday. Um, and then was very good in the fourth quarter. So um, I would imagine the Ravens will be able to do what they normally do to rookie quarterbacks and keep him um, kind of keep him struggling more than than we saw late against the Lions. Um, and yeah, it's going to take it's going to take better quarterback play, but good quarterbacks are going to be able to take advantage. I think at least at least for a couple of big plays a game with middle of the field. All right, uh, Raven Ravens on Twitter is wondering which players on the Ravens is going to be pivotal in containing Kyler Murray. Okay, I'll, I guess I'll start. Uh, in terms of a spy, if they're really talking about using that, we could see some more out of a player like Deshaun Elliott brought in to play that WLB role, or uh, Clark could could possibly play more of that. Levine could play a few more snaps. I like Levine as more of a of a situational pass player uh, than I do as a spy for a player like Murray, where I think a you know a faster younger player is probably a good choice. Uh, you know maybe this is maybe this is a time to use Elliott. They have two good outside two good inside linebackers in terms of downhill speed that Murray seems to play into their skill set fairly directly. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think you. I think we didn't see him do a whole lot of moving. Um, I, I think it was more of what he could do with his arm this week, um, but it's just something that they have to be aware of. I think this is something, though, where the Ravens play against Lamar Jackson in practice mm-hmm. every single day. Of all the teams in the NFL, they're probably going to be best um, best, fit, best suited um, to kind of know what they're looking for there. So um, I, I think they'll be able to contain him in the run um, I, I just think he was a lot better as a passer in the fourth quarter yesterday. So I think as long as they can kind of keep that down a little bit, avoid giving up big plays downfield, I think they'll be okay. All right. And about those big plays down the field, the Cardinals run four wide receiver sets. So what personnel would the Ravens line up with that? Uh, they could line up with a four corner version of the dime. They played that some last year. I think it's probably more likely they, they line up still in a, in a plain dime and try and get some, some cover two value to that or some zone value, uh, either way. Yeah. I think, I think having Errol Thomas back there as well, gives them a little bit more versatility that you're not, you're not entirely going to be concerned if you've got some linebackers or some bigger safeties um, trying to cover guys there because you know that you've got some support. You know, if the Cardinals want to run uh, four guys downfield at any one point on Sunday, 
there's a very good chance that Earl Thomas is going to be able to take away at least half the field on those plays. So that gives them a little bit more versatility there, I think. Let's, let's stay with that point for just one second, because I'd actually be a little bit more concerned about their coverage of the field when they're in cover two in that situation, having Jefferson manning half the field, because that's definitely not his strength as a safety. And, you know, it, it is a it's a it's a possibility if you bring him up to cover a tight end that you on some plays you have a player like Elliott on the back end or like Clark on the back end, who's more of a of a of a cover two player. I, I just I think the Ravens have other options and I wouldn't really rule anything out in terms of what they might do against a player like Murray or against uh, multiple four receiver packages. Yeah, yeah, I think it would be interesting to see if they played, as you said there, if they brought Elliott and um, had Elliott and Thomas deep and then let Jefferson do work close yeah. to the line of scrimmage, because that's definitely somewhere where um, he's been far better in his career. All right, uh, one more question. Let's get out of here with Daniel, who wants to really dig into a little bit into PFF. So he says, PFF has provided some great insight into how each play is reviewed and graded. But how does that convert to stats and player grades? And are all plays then weighed equally? So, uh, no, all plays aren't weighed equally, um, especially in terms of the way things are converted into zero to 100 grades. Now, um, there is more weight into to bigger plays. So I, it's kind of a little bit like what we touched on earlier with Kenny Young. Um, the fact that, He's prone to a couple of those lapses that will lead to a bigger downgrade. Uh, means that it's less likely for him to be able to chip away at those and wind up with um, bigger grades. So higher graded plays are going to have a bigger impact, and sample size plays a plays a role there as well. Um, but yeah, if you have, so you look at Lamar Jackson yesterday, and he had you know, several big throws downfield, so that's going to have a big impact on his grade. Um, you look at a guy. Uh, like Baker Mayfield in the fourth quarter yesterday, he actually graded really pretty well for quarters one to three for the Browns. Quarter three, uh, quarter four rolls around, has a couple of horrible interceptions, especially the pick six, um, and that completely tanked his grade. I think he wound up around about the 60s. So um, big plays that, uh, big plays that are kind of game defining based on the grade, um, will have a bigger impact on a player's overall grade than just a standard play that winds up being um, like a kind of just either side of a zero grade. Okay. Now I, I really, I want to dig into this for just a second because I was talking to Sam a couple of years ago at camp and asked him if PFF had included a leverage component in their grades yet. And they hadn't at that point, but you're saying now that, that leverage either by expected points or expected wins is now part of a multiplication of value for the individual graded play. Yeah. So from, so we still, when we're grading the play, we grade it the same way we always have, but the way things go into the system now um, and the way things are extracted, it's, it's more kind of the way they're now extrapolated into the, the 0 to 100 system. Um, there is a little bit more weight in there in terms of, okay, this is what the this is what you would expect on this play. Um, for example, running back, we can look at if a running back has X amount of yards before contact on a play, this is this is the grade we would expect them to get. And then we can apply a little bit more normalization there. So um, there was always a little bit of normalization. I think it's just something that's probably ex been expanded upon a little bit there. Okay. 
All right, fair enough. I'm going to try and get Ben Stockwell on the show at some point. Is <laughs> is is Ben the methodology guy now, or is he the grading guy? And I'm trying to make that distinction without being uh, seeming negative about it in any uh, way. But. I, so I think he's he's both. He's the guy who. So Neil came up with the initial system. Um, mm-hmm. Ben developed it, um, and is still he's still our lead analyst who. Um, kind of has final say on a number of things, although he gets support from other people on that. Um, and will, through working with um, coaches and various other people, if we're ever going to change anything, kind of in the way we collect something, he's the guy who says, right, guys, we're changing the way this, you know, the way we've collected this run concept. Um, we're now going to look for this. And um, But he also does a ton of grading himself. He still, he still, um, he still does a lot of the actual hard work himself. He's, it's kind of just the way he is. All right. Very cool. Uh, ben was always very good and very responsive uh, and, and transparent with me about talking about individual offensive line grades. So when we would look at things, we would we would see, you know, we have definitional differences in how we do things, but we were able to always sort out what had gone on. And yeah. I, I always really appreciated that. Yeah. And that, that's funny. That's actually a lot of the time where um, I've had discussions with coaches in the past. Uh, in my previous role, uh, I was head of special teams and um, had a couple of conversations with coaches around grades and there was one coach who was brought up a play and he was just like okay what grade did you give this guy in this play and I was like okay we gave this and he's like no I wouldn't do that I would give him this and then we just talked it through and he's like oh, okay yeah but in our system this grade means this and this grade means this and it was just a, um, a definitional difference mm-hmm. rather than and when you looked at how our grade impacted against the rest of the players and how it impacted against the rest of the way he graded it, it wound up being pretty much the same thing, just almost different terminology and numbers. Right. All right. Well, PFF certainly has, has changed the way we look at football. It's, it's going to get a lot more offensive linemen into the Hall of Fame sooner than they would otherwise. And it's it's changed in the last you know decade or a little bit more now, uh, you know, how we look for information week for week for player groups we would look for pro bowl voting as our only real indicator for it at at one time but uh definitely very exciting i'm sure to be working for a company that's part of that uh, uh that revolution yeah it's definitely a lot of fun it's um it's not really where i expected my life was going to go um but i'm definitely very glad it did all right all right, all right. gordon well, uh, thank you for joining us on Film Study. I want to get a chance for you to get some plugs in here and tell people. I know everyone should be following you on Twitter at PFF underscore Gordon because you mentioned already you're a Ravens fan, and it looks like you're an Orioles fan as well. So everyone in Baltimore should just be following you up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm a huge baseball fan, but I've gone to I've gone to an Orioles game, um, and I try and pay attention to um, to what's happening there. So. And hey, if you're if you're into rebuilds, that's the Orioles. Yeah, exactly. It's, the, it's definitely the the baseball equivalent right now. Right. All right. So, uh, what what can people be checking out that you're working on over at PFF? So, uh, just published uh, this evening or this afternoon was our um, team of the week, um, which is pretty Ravens heavy on the offense. Uh, Lamar Jackson, uh, Marquise Brown, and Mark Andrews all feature there. Um, there's a lot of guys in the defensive side of the ball that wound up just missing out because there was guys slightly better than them. But I think this is a week most Ravens fans will be pretty happy to be talking about the offense anyway. Okay, exciting. So we'll have our podcast on the offense tomorrow night and uh, really looking forward to that one. Yep, 
All right, Ken, and over at filmstudyravens.com, you've got your breakdown up. Yes, breakdown's up there. All the packages the Ravens played. A lot of the things, frankly, we talked about on this show, but there's information on every single Raven who took at least one snap defensively, which was everyone who was active uh, in this game. So there's notes on everyone, uh, notes on the packages. Uh, we've separated out the pass rush information. I haven't got a question yet about this, but we're going to have that in a separate article uh, this year so we can get some additional traffic and have an additional visit per week. And uh, we hope people look into that when I post that uh, offensive line stuff. We're doing it tonight. As soon as I get off this call, uh, Maureen and I are going to sit down and grade the offensive line together. And we'll have that uh, ready for the podcast tomorrow night on the offense and uh, the article that will come out the day after that. Right. So article and offense podcast coming up. And that's going to be a lot of fun because John Harbaugh hyped the offense a lot this offseason. I think we were all surprised on Sunday. Yeah. How could we not be? That was just uh, more than anybody could have hoped for. At Film Study Ravens uh, and FilmStudyRavens.com uh, to, to go find our stuff. And uh, Josh, appreciate all the work you put in on the website. And, and uh, it, uh, it looks like it's improving every day. It's yeah. I mean, we went kind of with no notice. We launched that site and it seems like it's growing and working and uh Definitely appreciate any feedback we're getting from readers and listeners so that we can make that what everyone wants. All right, guys. Okay. Well, have a good evening. Thanks, guys. We're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch. Now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture. And when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space. Just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.